How does faith lead you into relationship with the poor? And how does it change not only the poor, but those who enter that relationship? We'll be talking with Larry James, CEO of City Square, about just that on Good God coming up. Welcome to Good God. I'm George Mason, your host, and I'm pleased to welcome Larry James to our show. Larry, good, to, be good to have you with us. Thanks, George. Larry is the CEO of City Square, a, a human and community development corporation that is at work all through the Dallas area in our community uh, for uh, the, the well-being of people, especially those who are more challenged in terms of their opportunities, um, whether uh, educationally, materially, housing. And Larry, housing is something I think we should really talk about because it is a pernicious challenge in every urban center in this country. Uh, and you have been at work trying to address this in certain ways. We know that there has been a traditional approach that uh, when someone finds uh, himself or herself homeless, there is this effort to get them into shelters and then to transitional housing. And uh, often there's about, uh, there's a, 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 a drug or rehab program, uh, but often there are stays in the county jail and they're, they're, it's just sort of a back and forth uh, matter of uh, charity and benevolence and, and, and you have to sort of earn your way toward, home, uh, toward a home. Uh, this is, this is a, a catch-22. It's a never-ending cycle, it seems, that right. people can't seem to break out of. What have you been learning over the last decade or so that has changed your understanding of how communities can address homelessness? Well, that, that's a very provocative question. Um, it's kind of interesting. City Square last year served over 40,000 different people, over 90% of whom were not homeless. So our main focus wow. happens to be the working poor, the folks that are, that are in masses and are often overlooked. Yes. But setting that aside, um, Tom Dunning and others encouraged us to enter the fray uh, of homeless housing because we were doing workforce housing. Mm -hmm. uh, our housing company has produced almost a thousand units of workforce housing. Mm -hmm. We shifted slightly, or I guess you could better say expanded our focus to include some homeless issues. And we have learned a lot. Uh, we now have uh, over 700 units of housing devoted to formerly homeless people and, and in permanent supportive housing units. They're scattered all over the city. In some cases, we have uh, concentrations of maybe 30 units and a 500 unit development. Mm -hmm. 25, 10, some single folks in, in, in different apartments. So we've been working now for almost a decade mm -hmm. to understand this problem. Let me, let me stop you there just to, in order to define terms a little bit. Yeah. You've used language of workforce housing, sometimes called affordable housing, uh, and you've used the term uh, permanent supportive housing. So as I understand it, uh, Dallas is a city that lacks about 30,000 units of affordable housing. Is that still that's, the that's number? What, that's what City Hall says. Okay, so you think it's even more than that? It could be more than that. It's All hard right. to measure. So when, when people are, are, are trying to understand that, try to imagine that what we're talking about here is people who are, are actually having jobs, they work often for minimum wage or a little bit more than that, 
and their families just barely can make enough to meet their bills and sometimes can't. But in order for them to rent an apartment, to have a place to live, it, it takes so much of their income to, to find a place that often what happens is they have to leave the city and then they need a car because they don't have public transportation. That car may not have insurance. Then there may be uh, issues with regards to uh, a child gets sick and there's no support. So we have a, a, a kind of flow of problems because the people who can't who, who, who work in a certain area can't live in that area. Correct. And so the, the idea is how do we have different levels of housing within the urban center? Correct. And we are lacking that particular thing. Huge problem. It's a huge problem and it's one that I think our council has tried to address uh, with developers requiring that certain a certain amount of affordable housing be included in new projects and things of that nature, but it's really difficult to accomplish. Isn't it? With varying degrees of success, has that policy been fulfilled? Right, right. right. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of pressure about uh, increasing property values right. and making sure that people feel safe in their neighborhood and, and people have in sometimes rational and sometimes irrational fear about all yeah. of that. And right? You know, one of the things we've discovered is the hourly wage required to lease a livable, mm -hmm. uh, underlying livable, one-bedroom apartment is almost $17 an hour. Yeah. So and the minimum wage is? $7.25. $7.25. And some cities have been uh, taking it upon themselves to increase that right. as much as to, I think, about $15, $17. There are, there are some. that I, yeah. I, I think Dallas is, the city of Dallas has done some of that. And they're just below eleven dollars an hour okay. for city employees. City employees, right. they have no authority. But not to mandated. Impose. Can't yeah. do it in Texas. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's affordable housing, and not the focus of what we're talking about here. But when you use the language of permanent supportive housing, right. that's a that's a very descriptive term. Yes. So say yes. something about that. Okay. So of our seven hundred plus apartments, all operate permanent supportive housing strategies. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they also employ a housing first theory, which simply means if you're homeless, you're housing ready. Mm -hmm. You don't have to jump through any hoops that we create. There are no requirements to get into our apartments other than just the standard leasing requirements of any lease agreement. Uh, and we waive criminal backgrounds in many cases uh, in some of these apartments. Uh, people do really well once they're housed. Uh, so that, that's our basic philosophy, housing first, not transit. We don't have any transitional housing units. Okay, so let me, let me be the offended person yes. who says this is contrary to American meritocracy. Right. To the idea that every person should be personally responsible and earn the right to, uh, to, to have anything that no one is owed by their neighbors a house or a job or something of that nature. Right. And so are we undermining uh, personal responsibility here? Are, are we creating a further uh, culture of dependency mm -hmm. in which we uh, are, are saying to people, your behavior doesn't matter, and doesn't that reduce the sense of dignity that comes from personal achievement and work and all of those things? Right. So I could launch off into that direction and talk for a long time okay. about this sort of um, 
inadequate definition of morality. All right. Uh, that does not take into account life circumstances, mm-hmm. health issues, our economic system, and the way it's structured. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can go for a long time talking about all right. that. But when people say that sort of thing to me, I try to shift to the economic argument, okay. which is really underneath a lot of it. And I ask, I, I state a fact, and I ask a question. The, the fact is, we can save the county millions of dollars a year by going ahead and housing people immediately. Mm-hmm. Because if once we get them housed with a permanent supportive, uh, uh, housing, a permanent supportive housing strategy, we can reduce their admissions to the ER. We can begin to work with them at their decision on their issues, whatever they might be. We can uh, stop uh, all the trips to jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll say more about that in a minute, but that's that's a fact. The question is, would you rather have homeless people that like you've described and like you understand them, would you rather have them on the sidewalk or in my building? Mm-hmm. Well, so, so I'm saving especially the county money. if it's economically beneficial to the taxpayer. So the, the, the county has a list of the 300 most expensive consumers of services in Dallas County among the homeless, Mm -hmm. 300 names. Um, Those individuals average costing Dallas County over $42,000 annually per Per person. person. Per person. And and that's because of the cost of jail and the cost of uh, ER visits. Correct. Of, of of emergency uh, paramedics yes. and of, of of all these sorts of social mental, services, mental health services, mental health services, all that. Okay. And so we can house a person for well under fifteen thousand a year and provide right. all the services mm-hmm. that save the county now twenty five to thirty thousand dollars. Okay. So when it's a housing first understanding, you take a person <laughs> who is uh, chronically perhaps uh, dealing with mental health issues, uh, often bipolar or schizophrenia, these sorts of things. Addiction. Who, addiction to drug or, and or alcohol, uh, who, who has a, a limited demonstrated capacity to care for themselves. Correct. And you hand them a key. Right. And you say, you are now a homeowner. Yes, you are. And this is your key, and you don't have to answer to anyone. Correct. However, we have on this floor, or in this neighborhood, we have uh, some people who are going to look after you and see to it that you get your medication, that you're taking your medication, that you know how to access mental health resources, that when you're in trouble you have someone to call, that you are eating your meals and taking care of yourself, and what happens if that occurs? 87% 87% of the homeless people on the streets today could largely stabilize on their own if they had permanent supportive housing. Wow. And it boils down to choice. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, gonna, we're not going to make you do anything you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. We're here as concierge uh-huh. to help you achieve the goals you set for yourself. Wow. And there's really only one rule for you. Mm-hmm. Once you get into development, there's just one rule. Mm-hmm. Be a good neighbor. Yes. If you're still struggling with alcohol, struggle inside your house. Mm-hmm. Don't bring it into the common areas. Mm-hmm. Know, however, 
that in your struggle, we're right here, one step away, and we're willing to engage you in that problem. But you've got to make the choice. Right. That's, how, that's just how it works anyway. Right. And so... Uh, and that's really true whether they're on the street or in a, a, a permanent supportive housing setting, setting, but at least when they're in a permanent supportive housing center, uh, they, they are... Uh, they are freed from the vulnerability that the street represents, from uh, the, the need to beg, uh, right. to, to, to bother businesses and right. individuals and neighbors, and also to cost the taxpayers enormous amounts of money. Exactly. You know, I know one thing really for certain. I have to eat every day. I can't go very long without that. Mm -hmm. And I have to take care of my bodily functions every day. Right. And if I have nowhere to go, literally, mm -hmm. and nothing to nourish me in a mm -hmm. consistent way, mm -hmm. I'm going to be a problem, and I'm going to have problems. There is a, an acronym that we're familiar with that many people need to be introduced to, and it's a concept that many people uh, have to come to grips with, I think, in our community. It's called NIMBY, yeah. not in my backyard. There are a lot of people who agree with the kinds of things we're saying and would say, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And then we ask them to approve the building of, uh, of these permanent supportive uh, housing units in their community, and immediately the NIMBYism takes so, place. That's right. So in 20, almost 25 years, we have never done a housing intervention either through leasing or through construction, where we didn't have a fight over that, what you just described. Right. Um, we've been run out of more neighborhoods than you can imagine, with yeah. just even the idea. Right. Um, I understand that the idea is rooted in a lack of understanding, mm -hmm. a lack of experience, mm -hmm. a lack of exposure. Mm -hmm. One of the things that drives our gaps that we mentioned earlier in this community really has to do with not knowing one another. Uh -huh. Once you get to know Blue mm -hmm. or Terry or Donna, right. you have a different conception of who right. of who homeless people are. Right. They 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 are human beings with names and stories yeah. just like ours. A exactly. And so let's pick that up after the break. We're gonna right. talk a little more about City Square again. Good. Good. Okay. One of the challenges we face in the fight against poverty is that it is such a big broad problem that it can be overwhelming to people. Can I really make a difference? Is that something I can really impact? And the answer is yes. My name is John Seibert. I am President and Chief Operating Officer at City Square. The mission of City Square is to fight the causes and effects of poverty through service, advocacy, and friendship. Now, the service takes the form of about 17 different programs. Advocacy takes the form of different forms of community organizing and uh, really speaking up for neighbors in poverty. And then really the key, the secret sauce to who we are at City Square is friendship. City Square is uh, really in the people business. And so our fight against poverty is all about uh, relationships and investing in people. There are no clients, uh, there are only neighbors. And we're all in this together as friends and in community as one. And so I think when we focus more on recognizing our shared humanity, that's when poverty doesn't stand a chance. We're back with Larry James. Uh, Larry, we were talking about permanent supportive housing and addressing homelessness. And 
I, I think the question is, there are challenges, sure. obviously, to accomplishing all of this. But there are models that you have piloted, including uh, the, the cottages at uh, Hickory, um, Crossing. Hickory, Hickory Crossing, uh, which uh, were an extremely expensive modeling, very pilot very modeling, and I know that you've been able to drive the cost down now of how to do that. But what have we learned uh, about this approach, this housing first approach, uh, and, and what stands in our way uh, to really uh, making a tremendous dent in the social problem of homelessness. Yeah, so uh, I think it's two or three issues. One is funding, which you mentioned, and we do know how to drive the cost down. However, the cost will always be regarded as too high by some people mm -hmm. who feel like a shelter is good enough. Yes. We have the philosophy that says, if you can't put a photograph or a picture or a painting on the wall, you're not home. Uh -huh. And so a shelter is not enough. A shelter is not housing. Mm -hmm. It's temporary. It's emergency. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's a blessing that people need to have, mm -hmm. but it should be short term. Okay. Um, the, the, the other is the philosophy that says we're going to give an accord to everyone the opportunities we ourselves have to deal with our problems. Mm -hmm. Give you an example. I ask people often how many, what, what, what's the percentage of alcoholics in America who are housed? Mm -hmm. I would I would posit way over ninety percent. Wow. Yes, they're just lawyers and pastors and doctors uh -huh. and airplane pilots and right. And we don't make a deal about their mm -hmm. stuff because they're in their house taking care of it. Uh, what makes us think that a guy or a gal on the street with nothing can overcome their addiction, mm -hmm. their alcoholism, without some kind of intervention? Right. And housing acts as an intervention. Okay. I can't tell you the number of people who've sobered up and gotten back to health, or mm -hmm. at least on mm -hmm. the road to health, mm -hmm. once they got housed. Right. So, so some of this is money, uh, as we mentioned, and one of the things that's always perplexed me about Dallas, and it's not just Dallas, it's every major city. Right. We have extraordinary philanthropy yes. that is present in our community. That we have an arts district that is second to none. If we need to raise $3 billion to create an, a, a, a world-class arts district, and we have, and it is remarkable, and it is a gift to the city, and I have no truck with that. I, right. I, I'm you know, a member of museums and like to go and am proud of all of that. How is it, though, that when we think about the nature of what makes for a flourishing community, we don't have some philanthropists who are going to say, you know, if we could, if we could address things at the bottom the way we address things at the top with the same level of passion and philanthropy, we could have an extraordinary city. Where are those philanthropists who would say that? Yeah, that's a wonderful question, very insightful. Uh, I'll tell you where they are. They're divided. Mm. They're working separately. I see. Not intentionally. Yes. They're not against unification of effort and alignment. Right. There's just no one who stood up. Your, your first question was, where's the philanthropist who calls for this approach to this problem like the Arts District? Right. That's the question. Yeah. We need to move beyond this individual largesse and charity mm -hmm. to a unified effort. I was in Seattle uh, years ago, and in Seattle, uh, the Gates family has called together 
all the major foundations in the community. Mm -hmm. They meet once a month mm -hmm. to coordinate and align philanthropic investment mm -hmm. to achieve measurable goals mm -hmm. that have been decided by the group itself. Wow. Which is really wise. Mm -hmm. We don't have a coordinated effort mm -hmm. among our really um, encouraging philanthropic community. There are philanthropists who mm -hmm. care only about this, mm -hmm. and yet we just, just, they haven't come together like I think they would even want to, because no one's called them to that. Well, and I, I think we, all, we both know about uh, the potential for that to happen, yeah, that, and yeah. there are people who could make that call and yeah. who could bring people together around that. So in, in thinking systemically about this, though, I've just talked about philanthropy as if that's you know a, a, an answer to this, and it and it is a significant answer to it. Uh, but there's also a, a political dimension to it. Right. There's a there's a question of you know what we actually need to see all of that transformation, and it moves beyond charity, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, charity and justice have to work hand in hand somehow. That's right. Distinguish those two things. Well, charity is the largesse of a heart moved by love and sympathy to engage uh, episodically. Mm -hmm. a justice is all about systems and policies that make a nation, a community, a, a congregation of faith, wherever, work the way that it works mm -hmm. or not. Or not. Yeah. And so we have to move beyond charity as mm -hmm. John Perkins says, to real community development. And that's going to include some uh, disruption and some advocacy for systems change. Mm -hmm. um, and just, it's what really would be some examples of how policy changes at uh, the city or county level uh, in, in communities, laws, policy changes, ordinances, things of that nature, how, what would be some examples of how Dallas could change if we did this? You'd have to work in some broad areas like wages, mm -hmm. uh, income mm -hmm. uh, development, wealth development. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've had some experiences with that with very poor people who have who learn the skills to save and to develop some basis of wealth. Payday lenders need to go. Oh. Those kinds of institutions that exploit and prey on the poor. Uh, children need to be cared for. Mm -hmm. Education needs to be fully funded and expanded okay. uh, in terms of investments. Mm -hmm. uh, public health, there's no reason in the world why Texas shouldn't have expanded Medicaid. Right. Uh, the chip, I mean, mm -hmm. it just kind of goes on and on. We have the vehicles and the models. Right. We probably need some new ones. We need some revisions mm -hmm. back to your research-based mm -hmm. decisions. Mm -hmm. But no one, no, that's not correct now, no one, but the, the majority of us are not thinking in systemic terms these days. Right, right. We're thinking more in terms of individual. And I'll tell you, I, I think it's theological. Okay. I, I believe that we are shaped by a caricature of Calvinism. Calvinism, just, just describe that a little well, more. Well, yep. the idea that there are an elect, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And the evidence or the mark of election is, guess what? Wealth. Wealth, yes, that's historically been. And so, yeah. the, the, the wealth If chosen. I'm doing the right thing, God will prosper me. Exactly. Which the corollary is if, I'm, if I find myself in poverty, I must be doing the wrong thing. Yeah, exactly. And I am the wrong person. Yes. I'm on the wrong side of that great divide. Yes. When in Matthew 25, Jesus turns all that upside down, really, doesn't he? Yes. And he says, I am, in fact, these people you consider to be less. Right, right. And so it's, it's part theological. It's always been curious to me that 
poverty would grow in Dallas at the rate that it's grown while the economy is booming and while we have a church or a faith community virtually on every corner. Yes. The Urban Institute issued a study in the last month that ranked 274 cities on several axes of inclusion. So there was a study that, that measured the inclusivity of cities in the United States. 274 cities were analyzed. Dallas finished 274th out of 274. Wow. So we have work to do here in terms mm -hmm. of including one another in these discussions mm -hmm. to change the system while we are maintaining our charitable hearts and our openness to one another. Wow. You know, I think one of the hopeful things I see about that is that there does seem to be a new generation of religious leaders that is uh, calling attention to this, that is willing to step up and say this, this is not acceptable in a city known for its faith communities. Right. That, and its wealth. And, and its wealth, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and I think on the other side of that too, we're seeing that the city has recognize that if you want to attract a company like Amazon, for instance, uh, for its second headquarters, uh, they are looking at these kinds of things to right. see how do uh, people at each economic stratum live? What's the, what's the quality of life in a city? And we seem to have judged Dallas uh, historically on the basis of how many billionaires we're making, right. of how much wealth we're creating, without looking at the total sense of community right. and, and what's taking place there. So my hope is, at least, that some of these factors economically are going to drive us to pay better attention to that because it's going to be uh, otherwise uh, a continuing decline uh, or increase in that wealth gap that exists. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Yeah. So Larry, what uh, are some of the greatest challenges you think Dallas faces. Now, you've just mentioned this quality of life one. Okay. We've talked about homelessness. Uh, we've talked about some of the investments that need to be made. If, if you were to say, Dallas is my home, this is the place I live, my faith calls me to be involved in this as we know it does, and, and people are watching this and listening to this, what would you say is crucial uh, that if, if we could turn this in Dallas in, in the next decade, what would you say would be important? We need to double down on our efforts in public education. Public education. To okay. give the children that are in our schools mm -hmm. a chance to really succeed. Yes. But we must understand uh -huh. that, that their low performance in standardized testing that gives us this data we need mm -hmm. is linked more to poverty mm -hmm. than any other factor. Mm -hmm. uh, the children of the poor have many, many, many times fewer experiences than the children of the rich. Yes. And I've got story after story after story that validates that. And the quality of education in DISD, for example, I believe evidence and just anecdotal citing that it's improving. It's improving dramatically, <laughs> absolutely improving And some of that's due to volunteers who come in, mm -hmm. some of that's due to changes that have been made and how t uh, teaching staffs are mm -hmm. assigned and mm -hmm. managed and all mm -hmm. the rest. But we need to do more of that. And, and at the same time, we need to figure out ways to bring experience, ordinary common day experiences. There needs to be an experience quotient figured out mm -hmm. so that my grandchildren mm -hmm. and all their wonderful experiences 
are not far, far ahead of the children of the poor simply because my grandchildren can afford the experiences they can't. I think that this is one of the places where I hope conservatives and progressive people who are having conversations about this can, can learn to find some common ground. So education's crucial for everyone. You talk about the greatest deficit uh, being poverty. Yes. Uh, most of my conservative friends say the greatest deficit is, is in uh, families, and, and in terms of family involvement, investment, moral foundation, those sorts of things. But if, if, if I, I think- I would agree with that if you can afford it. Well, that's, that's <laughs> what I'm trying to get to, is some of these factors are related to the poverty factor. Exactly. And vice versa. Right. Uh, that, I mean, in fairness, that there, there are uh, self-management issues that do come with poverty, but the, the way out of poverty is, is also through uh, an increased capacity for self-management and for discipline and all of that too. But it's not either or. It's both yeah. of these things together. And we, we can't just give up on, uh, on, on a whole educational system uh, just because we have analyzed or diagnosed it in a particular way and we can't get other people to agree with us. Totally, totally yeah. agree. Yeah. And these children are in fact our children. Yeah. And if, 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 if one of our children is not doing well, then we all need to rally and figure out what we can do to, to help that child succeed. I think if we, if we could have the idea that yes, uh, my children are my children, and I love them particularly because they are my children. Uh, but because I am a child of God, uh, there really is no such thing as other people's children. That's exactly right. Yeah. Larry, thank you so much for, oh, thanks for all me, you George. did. Thanks for George. I appreciate you more than you know. Thank you. Okay. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Guest coordination and social media by Upward Strategy Group. Here's grateful appreciation to Evolve Technology for location production facilities. Evolve Technology for home audio, video, and lighting design. Enjoy more, think less with Evolve. See their great work at EvolveDallas.com. Thanks to Wendy Crispin Caterer for guest parking accommodations. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2018 by Faith Commons. One of the challenges we face in the fight against poverty is that it is such a big, broad problem that it can be overwhelming to people. Can I really make a difference? Is that something I can really impact? And the answer is yes. My name is John Seibert. I am President and Chief Operating Officer at City Square. The mission of City Square is to fight the causes and effects of poverty through service, advocacy, and friendship. Now, the service takes the form of about 17 different programs. Advocacy takes the form of different forms of community organizing and uh, really speaking up for neighbors in poverty. And then really the key, the secret sauce to who we are at City Square is friendship. City Square is uh, really in the people business. And so our fight against poverty is all about uh, relationships and investing in people. There are no clients, uh, there are only neighbors. And we're all in this together as friends and in community as one. And so I think when we focus more on recognizing our shared humanity, that's when poverty doesn't stand a chance.